Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey everybody, Chad Madden here with the Grow Your Practice podcast, and today we have a repeat visitor. Uh, we're going to get an excellent status update from uh, Deepak. Deepak is the owner of Primus Physiotherapy in Alberta in uh, Canada, Ed- Edmonton, correct? That's right. Yep. And uh, one of the unique things about uh, Deepak is his not, hopefully you heard the episode in January of 2021 when he was on this podcast last, but uh, came from a, a very humble beginnings, uh, shared his story about he opened a practice and he has one of the unique uh, attributes of actually joining Breakthrough before he even opened his practice. So amazing student, even better implementer, um, building quite a practice um, in Alberta, Canada. And welcome back, Deepak. Thank you very much. Great. So uh, if you could give us uh, a bit of a bring us up to speed. So 18 months ago, when you had flown here uh, from Canada, the one thing that had happened is on your way back, uh, you had to be quarantined for 15 days or so. And That's right. you, were, you were forced out of the clinic. So can you talk about what happened, like what you discovered? And uh, because I believe at that time you were treating quite a bit. And then all of a sudden you were forced not to treat at all. So can you talk about that experience and what you learned from that? Sure. Um, so uh, back in 2021, when I visited you, um, so yeah, so the COVID rules were changing every now and then. So when I booked the flight to come and visit you, there were no, there was like no quarantine phase at all coming back to Canada. But the day I landed, um, I reached home and I got a, a text from the government saying that, okay, now you have to quarantine for uh, 14 days. And it actually came like a, like a blessing in disguise kind of a thing. Um, and uh, so till then I was like treating almost um, 70, 80 hours a week patients. Uh, and that's just clinical hours. And then, then you add up your charting hours and the management time and stuff. So it was like out of 168 hours in a week, I was like, I'm pretty sure I was uh, somewhere around 80, uh, sorry, 100, 100, 110 hours, um, including everything. So um, as I said, it came as a blessing in disguise when I was um, away um, at quarantining at home. I um, told all my staff members, uh, called my clinic, called the uh, office manager that, hey, I wouldn't be able to see any patients. Would you, can you please uh, schedule them with other therapists? And um we had some pushback a little bit from some of the patients, but I just told them, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here at home. I can't really do anything. Um, why don't you do one thing? Just any patient who, who even show you a bit of a resistance, um, this is my cell number. Give them my cell number or you give me the patient's number and name and I'll talk to them. Um, so for those 14 days, that's what I did. So every time there was a patient who was showing some resistance to the staff member, um, I, they would just text me the number and uh, the name and it's okay, this patient is not willing to change the therapist, not willing to see anybody. So what I would do is I'll, I'll call them and uh, I'll be like, hey, uh, you know, all the staff members, they are very well trained and they're probably better than me. I'll like, you know, uh, I mentor them all the style of treatment that we follow. There won't be any different. 
than what I do. And I assure you that the standard of care you used to get from me would be exactly the same. Um, so that uh, happened. And so most of the patients were uh, scheduled in other therapist caseloads. And then, um, so then I, I went from treating uh, 70, 80 hours a week to uh, two days a week. Uh, and literally like 16 hours a week. And it was like a big shock for me when I came back to the clinic um, because now you have so much of empty time and you just don't know what to do uh, because you need to plan things out. Um, but then kind of I talked to you a couple of times where you know how to manage the time efficiently and all of that. Um, got a little lazy bum too at, at in between where, you know, I would just sleep in at home because I don't have a patient today, but so I just slept in. And But again, one thing, one good learning from that was you got to show up. You Even though you, like, you don't have a patient to treat, you get to get up and go and show up every single day. There's a lot of things. So I, it took me a month or so to adjust everything. But uh, after that, I, I worked on my meeting schedules um, and everything. And now at a point, so the uh, like long story short, after almost a uh, year and a half now, um, I, I don't treat patients in the clinic. I may have um, the only patient that I treat is like vestibular and concussion, which is two or three patients in a whole week. And um, a lot of time goes into uh, like, you know, strategic plannings and meetings and all of that. And just optimizing the operations of the clinic and uh, marketing and all of those things. That's great. I, I love your personal touch with the cell phone. Uh, guilty of doing the same thing yeah. in the past. Just as a rough estimate, how many patients showed resistance when you first did that? So how many personal conversations did you have? And then how many did not convert out of those patients? So uh, to be honest, I did not. I, I know one patient uh, out of my whole big client list. There was just one um, occupational therapist, actually. She was she was an old patient of mine, and she was just so adamant about not seeing anybody else and just me. And I just told them, hey, you know, this is my time. I was at this time, and I got to make it work. Otherwise, so I kind of after having that conversation back in, you know, um, <laughs> Harrisburg with you, that you know you have to draw some lines, and if you want to grow. Um, so I just kind of brought some lines that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how much time I'm going to devote to clinicals and stuff. So that, I think I only had one patient that I remember off of my head who, who was really adamant and she left the clinic and she went somewhere else. And we are still in contact and she's like, hey, she would just keep seeking my opinions, but she would not come to the clinic to take treatment from other therapists. Uh, she apparently found another manual therapist and she's been, but uh, I, uh, top of my head, I remember around, uh, 25 to 30% of my caseload were people who were giving some resistance to my uh, front team and they would just simply text me. And so in a day I may have eight or 10 patients to call. Um, but I felt like that was the best thing we did that I personally called them and I explained them that, Hey, why they need to see other therapists. And if I'm assuring them that, Hey, you know, I make sure that your standard of care would still be the same because I'm a clinic director and I still supervise the treatment planning. Um, if there is just give them two weeks, if you don't find them good, I'll, I'll come and treat you myself, but giving them this, just that reassurance, I think that worked pretty well for us. And um, another thing I think we, 
I shared with you too back then that um, we did not see a drop in the revenue at all. Like it was maybe I think the first month I when I stopped treating patients, uh, it was like a five thousand dollar debt. But then since then, uh, it's a consistent growth that we plan. That's great. Yeah. If you can think back, and this is tough to do, but mm-hmm. I know you had efforts to minimize your caseload in the past because you have five other, four or five other physios. Five, five other therapists. Yep. So I know you had tried to do that in the past. For owners that are thinking about doing that, or maybe they've tried and failed, what words of advice could you give them to help them overcome that and actually make the jump other than flying to Harrisburg while the Canadian laws change on COVID, um, where you're forced to do it, what other advice could you give them uh, to change their thought pattern and behavior? Um, I think one thing I would say is like, you get to decide, like, I think one thing that I, uh, I had it in my mind that, you know, I'm the best therapist and, uh, like everybody just like it's just a self-limiting belief like nobody can do as good of a job as i'm doing so there was i think uh it was a self-limiting belief on my part that uh everybody just wants to see me and i can't send them to my other therapist and they won't do as good of a job uh, as i'm doing so i think that changing that mindset is is kind of really important you need to uh, learn to delegate the stuff you need to um basically trust other people uh, and, and that's like sharing that caseload. Like um, you should be willing to change things. Uh, I think that's one thing I, I, I remember worked pretty well for me that, okay, after talking to you, coming to Harrisburg. Um, and I remember that like in Harrisburg too, we had, we were having this uh, session uh, at your house. And uh, I think you asked me something and I said uh, that, you know, you bring three therapists all over Canada and I'll like bet you like I'll be the top three. I remember, <laughs> I remember you saying that. that. <laughs> and, I remember and, that exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think I remember you mentioned that. I think that, that's where the problem is. Like you have this mindset that nobody's better than you. Yeah. And I think changing that, the thought process helped significantly where I started trusting my therapist more and, uh, and, and, yeah, so I think that helped significantly. Uh, so that's one part of it. The second thing we uh, we did was, uh, so I'm really little strict with how, because we have a very small plan of care and we don't get as many sessions with the patients. So one thing that we, we started doing was um, whenever we send a new patient to the other clinicians in the clinic, so every new clinician gets two sessions with the patient. Within two sessions, they need to show anywhere from 10 to 30 percent change in patient's condition um so we we went really strict on that that hey you know within two sessions if you don't uh see the change whether it's in pain range of motion um you know flexibility or whatever or at times the strength too if you don't see a change anywhere from 10 to 30 percent in patient's condition come and talk to me um, and let's sit down and discuss the patient's like further plan of care so that second thing that helped quite a bit and then the patient would still see me in the clinic and they would still see that therapist is trying to engage with me and trying to work on a treatment planning. Uh, so I think it, it took us some time, like three, four months to streamline all of that. But eventually, uh, after like one year, uh, it was all like streamlined. That's great. Love that advice. I uh, really like what you said about trust in there as well. That's trusting other people is key. 
Um, cool. So talk about patient resistance, two days a week, empty time. I want to dive into that. So, and, and helping owners not sleep in or watch uh, cartoons with their son. Uh, your, your son is school age now, correct? Uh, next year, he's four now. Oh, okay. I, I was thinking he was uh, slightly older than Addie. So they are like a few days older. I think he's January 1, 2. And uh, for, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, four weeks. Yeah. Okay. I, I was thinking it was four or five months and that he might be a year ahead in school. Um, okay. So it's very tempting in the beginning when you have that uh, that that empty time to fill it in and, and not to be disciplined with it. Um, can you talk about that? Because the other thing that you had mentioned that I'd love for you to expand on is showing up every day. And right. I know um, like my wife during the early days of COVID, eventually she just threw me out of the house and she said, you need to go right. to work, just be in an office, work from there, need quiet time to think and do everything else, but please go there and, and handle it. And it was, it, it was a great call on her part. So can you talk about the empty time, how you got more discipline with that and what you've learned in that process. Sure. So even with me, like, I think it was exactly the same thing. Like I was, I was spending too much time at home. My wife didn't like it. <laughs> and um, yeah, the same conversation we had and she's like, oh, you need to go. Uh, like, I just, I know I like you being home, but not, not this much. So you need to go to work and show up. And uh, so, yeah, so I think the first month was a bit of an adjustment for me because you just don't know like what to do with this this much this time that you have in your uh, hand but then um then i started planning uh, things i think one thing we did was i started uh blocking off putting the the in my calendar okay like let's we started doing the regular meetings so before uh before that i was only doing the staff meetings once a week um and because i did not have time to look into other things i was still look into the the management side of the things a bit, a little bit, but it gave me a time to be really, very disciplined with it. So I started writing things down and okay, and I started planning the calendar a day before um, that, okay, so every Monday uh, I will have individual staff meetings uh, or like with therapists. It'll be like a quick, like 30 minute um, check ins. So even till date, we do that. Um, so with every clinician that we have in the clinic, it's a 30 minute meeting. I do, uh, then I do a, um, you know, a 30 minute weekly meeting with my, uh, the in-house marketer that we have. Um, and then uh, our front team lead, we do that. Uh, so I think I started doing that. And I think uh, that kind of helped quite a bit, uh, planning all of those things out. Um, I started because um, after that, I started thinking about, okay, now, I've got this time in my hand. Now, what's the next step? Like, what do I need to do? And I think uh, you, know, you had a discussion back then that, okay, now it's the time to bring in um, the clinician and train them as a clinic director. We started working on that slowly. So those things started taking some time out. But I think the the only thing that helped there is being disciplined. So you you can't say, like, you know, okay, I've booked this meeting and then you can't just from home decide, okay, I'm not going to go to the clinic today and just call the clinic, hey, you know, can you cancel that meeting? Let's do it tomorrow or next day. Uh, I think that's, uh, I think those are the bad habits, I think, uh, that you, over the time, they brew up and spoil the whole culture of the clinic. Too. Um, so I think being disciplined was was best thing that worked. 
Um, another thing was I was having hard time doing some deep work uh, that I think, again, we had this conversation about it and uh, that I would be doing something and then somebody would just open the door and not come in right away. Um, and it would just distract it because there were days literally where I would come to the clinic for eight hours, but then I just would feel like I didn't get anything done because every, every time I start to do things, somebody would just come in and call me and, and get distracted. Um, so, so now when I'm at my deep work, there's a do not disturb sign outside. Uh, they know like once or twice I had to tell them like once it happened that they opened the door even after that sign was there and they walked in and uh, so I had a conversation about that and then now I think uh, we're at a position where I think that's been working when they see the do not disturb sign nobody walks in and they know that I'm doing some deep work yeah, um, yeah. that's great and does that answer the question I guess yeah yeah you, you, you yeah. nailed it um, it was basically how to fill in that vacuum of time that all of a sudden you have and the main takeaways that I heard you talk about were discipline. Um, and also it sounds like you started setting up meetings, not just the weekly meeting with your entire staff, but then you set up uh, a weekly meeting with each individual direct report. So your physios, right. the clinical director, et cetera. So you could start uh, billing marketing directors. So you could start bringing them along as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, another thing, like, I think, um, again, and again, that came from that because for me, I think that visit that I made you, yeah, and not just I'm saying that everybody should fly <laughs> and meet you there, but I think there were a lot of things that I learned from there. Like, you know, I remember one of the conversations we were having was about like what are the three main pillars of their practice, uh, whether like it was your operations and your uh, personnel and then your marketing side of the things. So, so I think I, I started dividing my time that I had in my hand um, based on those things that, okay, these are the things what I I, I personally need to do, uh, whether it's operations, how do I need to, how can I optimize these operations? So I wrote a few things down, started putting them into the calendar uh, and booked them with a meeting, whether it is the marketing that, okay, I need to go meet uh, like, you know, uh, the health and safety officer of this company, start planning based on that. And then the personal thing that, okay, I need to be in touch with the university. I need to be in touch with the, this group because that's where we can get the therapist and all of that. Yeah. So that's, I think, one thing I remember that I, I did, that I wrote those things down and then divided them into how I can put them into my schedules. Yeah, great. So uh, I want to share a thought with you, which is yeah. a learning that I had very early on when I started working with business, a business coach. Um, and off and on, I've had a ton of different business coaches over the years. But I remember or this is maybe like 2005, 2006, and I was trying to help another clinician friend who owned a business. And I said, you know, this is very, and I was talking with my coach and I said, you know, this is very frustrating. I am giving them the exact, like a small snippet of the exact information that I learned from you and they can't execute. And that is very problematic. And she said, well, how are you meeting with them? And I said, well, you know, we meet over lunch. It was at El Rodeo, a Mexican restaurant that was right across the street. And this, uh, this clinician had an office uh, pretty close to mine. And anyhow, we would meet there maybe once a month and we would talk about ideas. And I just noticed that it didn't matter what I said, he was just never going to execute and implement. And she said, well, think about your level of commitment. He's meeting you for lunch. 
that is a very low level of commitment. You're probably alternating like one time you treat, one time he treats, and that's exactly what we were doing. Right. And she said, you got on a plane, flew across the country. Like, you know, you're totally committed. You were willing to invest significantly more in yourself. He is not. How can you expect him to have the same results regardless of whether it's the same information or not? She said, your level of commitment is through the roof. You're going to do better. His level of commitment is very scarce and minimal. And I was like, wow, that's really, really good. So think about what Harrisburg is not fun to fly into, right? (laughs) You did it in January. You did it with during the pandemic. Um, You know, absolutely amazing. So it's really a testament to you and your grittiness to overcome obstacles and barriers and and implement. So well done. Thank you. (laughs) And if you want to know why Deepak is so gritty, go back and listen to the last episode. Uh, that we recorded when you were here. Um, you talked about the health and safety officer and also uh, beforehand uh, we were chatting and you said you had an initiative um, that you just got back into the office from with Costco. Can you talk about what you're thinking about there, tie that into any deep work you're doing as well, how you're thinking about promoting Primus uh, within your community? Sure, sir. So um, again, I'll just give you a little bit of kind of background on it first that um, I think one thing that happened over the time is like since we opened the clinic um, till today has been four years. Um, again, initial today. Few, so that's oh. you. Uh, no, not today, sir. Yeah, yeah. But oh, just uh, close. Last close. month. Last month was was four years anniversary. Happy birthday! So yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we um, what we, the pattern that we were seeing was that we had a lot of um, placed uh, a lot of space to grow bring in a lot of patients and all of that. But once you achieve that steep growth, uh, I think you hit a point where you don't need any more steepness in the growth, but what you need is, is a, it's a consistent um, growth. So I think what we saw that, okay, we are at a point where in like you know two and a half years, we outgrew the, the space that we had, we outgrew the uh, staff members that we have and everything. So then we decided, okay, how do we consistently manage it? Um, and one thing we came uh, came into my mind was that, okay, sure, we can keep spending the money on the marketing and keep getting the new patients, or we can figure out some of the ways where uh, you know we reach out in the community, establish our name and brand in the community, and set up some of these relationships with some of the factories and companies in or, in or corporate sectors around us and have them and start some of the systems so that we can consistently keep getting new patients from them because it's a no effort. It's a one-time effort work where you, you are basically spending two or three months in um, setting up that relationship and then setting up uh, all of that um, contract and stuff like that. But once it's done... You just have to keep doing a good job as a clinician. That's all. And then they will keep feeding you. So we kind of, me and my marketer, we sat down and I, uh, we had a meeting and we said, okay, we need to look for a couple of things. Um, one, who has um, more than 100 employees uh, around surrounding us? Like maybe look for a 5 to 10 kilometer radius. Anybody who has more than 100 employees or anybody, uh, you know, who caters to a, a large uh, population and they gather their email. I think that goes back to your uh, all the uh, the, uh, the the breakthrough teachings um, 
the cause workshops that we talk about, right? The captive mm-hmm. audience uh, workshops. Um, so that's what we started doing. We reached out to, I think, around 60-some companies. And uh, out of those 60, only 10 responded. Uh, and five actually took it to the next level. Uh, so we started working with them. So we have a con- we were working with two companies right now, uh, two factories, who they're huge factories. They have over 500 employee base and all. So we developed that relationship. We set up with them something what we call early intervention program, where every time there is a, somebody gets injured, uh, they would send the patient straight to us, and we we, we assured them, okay, we'll give up appointment to that patient within 48 hours in our clinic so now we have this consistent flow of patients coming in through that without much uh, spending in the marketing side of the things that improves your profit margins EBITDA levels and stuff like that. Um, second thing we did was again uh, comes back to the breakthrough teachings that um, ask your patients uh, where they work and all of that um, so we had this one patient uh, She's an old patient of mine. I've been treating for years. Um, she works at Costco. And uh, so we kind of, we tried it once before and we got shut down. Like nobody responded back. But we asked her, hey, you know, this, you had such a good experience. And is it possible at all to kind of do something with, with your, uh, the other employees who work at a particular Costco store? So she actually made an introduction with a health and safety officer at Costco. And they say once a year, they host this health and safety week. And um, uh, so she made an introduction. So uh, our marketer, Jacob, uh, he kind of uh, collaborated all of that. And so they said, okay, sure. Uh, so we had three or four patients from that particular Costco store. So they said, um, these are the busiest times. This is a health and safety week. Um, so I want you to come and um, come in our uh, rest uh, area or the break area, breakout room. And at, at any given point, they can have 50, pe- 50 employees in there. So they had some guidelines which are pretty standardized across the globe for Costco. They said you cannot treat anybody there and touch anybody and you cannot sell anything. Like, or you cannot make a transaction in Costco. They said, but apart from that, do whatever you need to do. So, so they gave us... Um, one and a half hour in the morning, one and a half hour in the evening for two days. So we got six hours time. And uh, so today was the first day of that. And tomorrow is the second day. So we are, uh, so that's what we're doing. We're going there, rolling up our banners, educating them, having a quick consults with the patients and trying to just get the clients. The idea is to basically set up a system where um, you can improve your profit margins. Because again, I remember from the conversation the back where where you mentioned that you know on an average uh, physical therapy practice in north america works on an eight person profit margin right um so that was the idea that okay what luckily we are sitting at 20 percent but if if there is something that we can do more to improve that EBITDA margins that was the idea minimize the marketing expense uh, and set up this system where we constantly feed getting feeded by these two or three institutions surrounding you creates a good world, creates a good uh, community presence and uh, less marketing. Great. I want to ask you about a couple of things. The the first one is, uh, I think we were talking about the Peter Drucker principle, the quantity, which is what you talked about in the beginning, right? Filling up the schedules, filling up the space. And you were able to do that in about two and a half years. 
And then right. you're talking about quality, which is and viability, which you're you're getting to the profit margin. And if you can go from, let's say, eight or ten percent profitability, which is skating on very thin ice for a service-based business, and we can increase that to 15 or 20 percent, we're much more viable and more likely to be open next year to be able to continue to serve. Um, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, just wanted to make sure I had that conversation right. And the other one is, I hear you talking about um, marketing expense and the average clinician, when they hear that, it's the right answer is zero, right? Um, you are investing in marketing. Yes, and uh, if you could talk through how you're thinking about that, um, that would be excellent. Yeah. So for sure. what are your thoughts on marketing expense? Uh, so for me, I think um, um, I think marketing can be an investment and uh, or an expense for you, depending on how you see it or how you implement it. Right. Um, a lot of people, what they think is marketing is you just dump the money and um, without thinking about your, you know, market uh, media message uh, triangle. Um, or just give the money to somebody and they would do the job for you and you don't have to do anything. For me, I think one thing that I've learned over the last four years is that marketing sure works, but it doesn't work if you don't do the job. Like you get to do a lot of background work for it. Like sure, you can run the ads on Google uh, or you can run the workshops or you can do everything. But if you don't uh, train or keep uh, your staff accountable of their part of the work that they need to do. Like, you know, running the, like you can get 100 registrations for the workshop, but if they're not able to convert that, all of that and bring them into the clinic, then it's just a waste effort. So then that marketing becomes an expense for you and not an investment. Um, so that's how I think about it. Um, and that's why I think um, I, I emphasize a lot on implementation side of the things that or doing things in a right way and get the most out of every single money that I'm putting into the marketing. So that's one um, part of it, sir. And the, the second thing is just, I guess, uh, I think the, the for the marketing side of the things, we take out not necessarily, I think ideally everybody should take out 10%. That's the, uh, uh, I think that's what I've heard from a lot of uh, people from you and other people that okay take out 10% of your revenue and put it in the marketing um, for us you know with the rents and everything that we deal with for me I'm spending a lot of money uh, in the marketing but that's still probably not 10% because we can't afford to mm -hmm. simple logic but uh, but that's when you have to come up with these different solutions of what you can do um, to still market because market doesn't again one of the things for me is like marketing doesn't have to just involve money it can be involving your time effort it can be involving your you know other stuff brewing those relationships that you have with the community and all of that right so that's the second part of the things um yeah i think that's those are the two best answers that i can give yeah and just for uh context for everybody average plan of care in canada for you is four hundred dollars four hundred dollars and square footage what including including yeah. operating cost at sixty dollars okay so and operating cost is utilities so money to keep not the, the utility up. not the utilities so so it's the base rent plus your common area cost is what you call operating cost yeah so sixty dollars a square foot plus yeah so low plan of care and for all of us that have uh excuses or are feeling 
victimized because we operate in the wrong state within the U.S. I'm pretty sure most of us are more than a $400 plan of care on average and are paying less than $60 a square foot. So this is you're doing exactly what it takes to survive in uh, what seems like an impossible environment for many for many owners. Well done. Thank you. Hi, listeners. I think I might have something that you're interested in. If you are a listener of this podcast, I'm assuming that you're an owner or an aspiring practice owner. And my question for you is, what's the most pressing thing that you're wondering about in growing your practice? So essentially, if you could ask me any question, what would that be? You know, is it something around personnel? Like, you know, how do I handle when team members ask for a raise? Is it something around marketing? Like, should I be advertising on TikTok? Or how often should I be emailing my past patients? Is it something in finance or practice growth? Well, if you have a question, wouldn't it be great if you could get an immediate answer from me to your question? And I think I have something that you might be interested in. If that does fit the case for you, I uh, might be able to help you out. I'm hosting a live Q&A session for private practice owners. And you'll be able to hop on the call and uh, unmute yourself, have your camera on if you prefer, and ask me any question that you might have related to practice growth. Absolutely nothing is out of bounds. And uh, the the deal is you just need to register for the call. I think we have a limitation on how many people can get in. Um, we are, this is something new that we're launching, uh, specifically to the grow your practice podcast, but you do need to register. So there's likely a link, um, here or in the, uh, getbreakthrough.com page. So you can go there or look in the show notes here for the link, but you do need to register for the next live Q and a session. So what's your most pressing question? You make, make sure that you write that down. What's stopping you from growing? your practice and the way that you want to grow it. And then join me in the next live Q&A session and we'll make sure that you get your questions answered. The uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, a few months ago when we spoke and I think we were in Denver together, um, you were uh, working on the business primarily and you were trying to tweak some things. Can you talk about, is there any major learning that you had in there, another realization, something you were struggling with, and how did you think through that and overcome it? Sure, sir. Yeah. So one of the things that happened with uh, in the last one year was, um, so Alberta is primarily an oil and gas country, right? That's all happens. Oil, Alberta economy feeds the whole country. The only thing you get here is oil and gas. Um, so when the oil prices started going up, uh, so we are, so we pay. But I don't know, I, I can tell you in liters and then we can convert it in gallons. But for, we pay like 70 cents a liter. We are so used to paying anywhere from 70 cents a liter to 90, 95 cents a liter gas. Um, but what happened uh, last February, um, like February of this year when Russia attacked Ukraine and that uh, the gas prices went off the roof and uh, excuse me. So the gas pricing now they are anywhere from like one thirty-five, and at one point they were like almost two dollars a liter. It was like brutal. And so just that conversion factor is there's almost four liters in a gallon. So it's roughly eight dollars okay. a gallon for those who are familiar with the U.S. But yeah, I wanted to do that conversion yeah. for you. Yeah. 
Sure, sir. Thank you. Yeah, so that happened. And then what it did was uh, it just uh, disrupted the budgeting of every single household here in Alport. Um, so because when the gas prices goes up, you know, the your logistics gets expensive, your food gets expensive, every single thing was expensive. So I was listening to uh, a channel on radio was talking about the gas pricing in Alberta in the last one year went up by 120%. Uh, the grocery pricing went up to over 48%. So these two are the one of the biggest expenses. Um, and again, we live in this capitalist world where, you know, savings, there's no name of saving. Everybody just live on their, most of the people, they live on their credit cards and, and all of that. So they don't, they plan their, month in a way that okay but i'll get this much money i'll expend this much money there's no concept of saving so we started seeing uh, like a crazy pattern in our clinic where we would get the assessments but the people would like not complete the treatment plans like they would just come in and they know that you know we because we we uh, we are very strict about the results so within two or three sessions they would feel better and then they would just drop so there was like a crazy drop-off rate and like we were just struggling to maintain that. So a lot of cancellation, a lot of no-shows. Um, at one point, it went up to like 20% uh, cancellation no-show rate. That was the first time um, that I, I noticed that uh, we started losing money since we opened the clinic. So our average revenues, uh, we started seeing like a $10,000 the loss in the revenue, $20,000. So in a quarter, uh, I think the second quarter was the worst for us where we saw almost, I think, $70,000 revenue loss. Um, so that was like, and again, we kept thinking about what to do, what to do, because when people don't have money, what else can you do to get them to come to the clinic? Like, um, we had a conversation about it, me and you at Denver. But uh, one thing that we did was we... Um, uh, we, we basically started thinking about, like, you know, people are still buying the businesses. So I, one of my friends, he works at a, at a big furniture box store. And I was talking to him. He's like, man, we still have people. They come and buy the furniture. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, how are the people buying the furniture when they don't have money to drive the, the car and run the household? Like, yeah, we have this um, system called buy now, pay later. What? Uh, like, can we implement it in the clinic? So what we did was we contacted a few companies who would run that system uh, by now, pay later. And like, hey, can do you do this? In, and in the medical field, they're hardly couple. So because Canada is, is you know, a public healthcare system, so there's barely one or two companies. So we contacted them and then, uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing now. And that's been working well that we contacted a company. Um, like, okay, now we have started selling packages. So at least the clinic would get the bulk of revenue. Like sure, uh, so they would. We set up two systems. One was where the patient had to pay the interest rate, and again, it was learning for us. The patient would pay seven percent interest and, and pay the fee back in uh, one year time. Nobody liked it. Even the patient didn't love it. So then we changed that. We hired another company, and now we're working with them. So it's a zero percent uh, payment plan for the patients, so they can buy a ten session package. And uh, a clinic pay, I think, 9.2% uh, management fee of that value. 
which is still better than nothing. But at least if you can sell those packages in volume, it's still a beneficial service for us. So now patient pays 0% interest. Um, they buy 10 visit package and they pay over the year, one year time to the company without any interest. Everybody is happy. We are getting our money. So that's one thing we changed. That's great. Yeah. Uh, lo- love how you problem solve, man. Very, yeah. very well done. Thanks. Um, Awesome. So uh, I have rapid fire. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, uh, random from a deck we have. So uh, let's see what we have here. Um, Bad at it. Oh, come on. Um, was there something that you really wanted bad when you were growing up, but you were always to- told no? When I was growing up, I wanted to be a model. <laughs> I wanted to do modeling and because like, you know, <laughs> for an average, like medium class, uh, middle class family, it's like, you, you got to study, you got to get a job, you got to, you know, <laughs> do all of these things. So that was one thing I, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, uh, okay. I was got uh, heard no for that. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> You're a role model now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so if you had an extra hour in a day, what would you do with it? Uh, Spend time with my my son. Nice. Yeah, and I, I'll I'll tell you one thing. I'm sorry I'm taking your time, but nice. just kind of why I'm I'm saying that is because the first um, two years of my life of my professional like to running the clinic, um, uh, I used to leave home at six o'clock in the morning when my son was fast asleep. I used to get back home at eleven o'clock at night. He was sleeping. So the first two years, my all credit to my wife. She raised him. I had no contribution at all. So now I just feel guilty about it and I, I try and spend as much time as I can. Today he starts his um, ice skating classes. It's first day. I'm going to go leave at five o'clock, go over there and spend time. So That's great. Yeah. Next grade hockey player. Don't you have quite a few? Uh, oh, yeah. Solid. Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I'll give you a choice here. First question is, uh, if you could have dinner with three people that are alive, who would you go with and where would you go? So that's question number one. Or what's one piece of advice you would give to everyone? Your choice. You can answer either question. I can both of them. I'll say actually both of them. Okay, great. So or dinner, one, yes. Din- dinner. dinner with three people, yes. All right. So um, with my my dad, for sure, the one person I would love to go out on dinners. Um, uh, second person would be you, and not just because we're talking right now. Because oh, man. Uh, yeah, and, and I'll give you the real rationale behind it. Um, and uh, the third person would be, um, you know, you introduced me to, you shared a video with me back in uh, January about somebody, uh, Monique Pabrai. Oh, uh, yeah, you, yeah, pretty smart dude, right? Pretty smart dude. So I've been consistently following him, following him in the sense like I've been listening and watching and reading and a whole bunch of things and all of that. So I feel at least like in this time and frame today, these three people, uh, my dad, I personally feel like he's the most intelligent person I know in my life. Um, super genius guy. Um, so every time you sit down with them, there's an experience that they share with you. It's amazing. Like there's no substitute to that. <laughs> Um, with you, uh, I've had lots of mentors, um, with you, one thing I've learned is, or one thing I like, um, getting mentored by you is there is no filter. A lot of people, they always feel that 
um, even with a lot of teachers, um, they always feel that, you know, they, they restrict themselves from teaching everything that they have to other people out there, thinking that they can steal their mind and steal the stuff that they know and then run their own stuff. So that's one thing I've learned from you. And I, I always appreciate that no matter what conversation we have, like you're, you're always a no filter man and like you try and just give whatever you have. So that's, I always appreciate that. So that's the reason why I love spending time with you. Uh, Monish Pabrai. Um, so I've been listening to his, uh, just so people know that he's an uh, investor. Uh, I think he has his own hedge fund and all. Um, one thing I, when I listen to his uh, podcast now for the years, I, I just, again, like he's such an honest guy. Like he's like, again, whatever is in his mind, he would just say it out. Like I, you, very rarely you would see people so honest um, out in the in the public uh, field, right? So I feel, and, and I can somehow relate with a lot of things that he talks about. So I feel like in today's time and frame, he'll be a pretty good person to have dinner with. Um, I would love to go with Warren Buffet, but he stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, that's great. Um, just to yeah, Monish Pabrai, uh, I forget the. What's the name of the book? The uh, Dando Investors. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Manish Pabrai, Pabrai is an investor. Um, he bought, he was famous for buying dinner or lunch with uh, Warren Buffett. I think he paid $600,000 with a guy, yeah. Guy Spear, if I remember right. Guy, guy Spears. So yeah. Yep. And uh, so he, he was one of the first uh, winners of the auction of the lunch with Warren Buffett and then became friends, uh, good friends with Charlie Munger um, as well, who is also of Berkshire Hathaway fame. Um, the other, so he runs, um, it's, it's not a, the, I forget the exact way that they, but it, it is some sort of investment. It's called Pabrai Funds. Pabrai Funds, yeah. Um, I, I looked at, I was curious. It's a $2.5 million minimum investment. Right. Um, with him and what they do is primarily value investing, but they do it around the world. So right. they look for heavily depressed markets of good businesses and they invest. Uh, it's a very consolidated portfolio. There's no mutual funds or anything. And I believe their rule is based off of the original Berkshire uh, investment philosophy or Warren Buffett's right. first investment and its um, his investment company. And the way that they do it is 6% a year. There is no fee. Anything right. above and beyond six percent, it's either twenty or twenty-five percent. You're paying as a fee to provide funds, so it's management. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and there is a specific name for that, uh, and I, it's it's escaping me right now. But uh, yeah, awesome guy. Love your picks there. Um, although it made me feel funny that you mentioned me, but uh, no, no. I, I appreciate it. Uh, feelings mutual. We will be in Chicago here shortly, so. Uh, Hopefully yeah. I'll get to catch up with you there. Um, anything? Oh, sure. the, the last piece was uh, any advice. Yes. Let's get back to that. Um, any advice? Yeah. I So two pieces of advice. So one is, um, um, and again, these are just from the life learnings, right? That you grow as a professional and as a person. So one thing I would say is, um, you know, a lot of times we, when it comes to the business, like be ready to kind of, there's no, don't regret doing things. I, I whenever I talk to like friends and family or even the like guard clinicians and all of that, I always 
hear them saying that, okay, oh, I made a bad investment or I, I did this wrong back then or I did this. So I personally feel like, um, like, you know, when we are re- going back in that regretting phase, like, okay, when I'm regretting my decision that I made two years ago, one year ago, five years ago, six months ago, for me to sit down today in a different situation, in a scenario and analyzing that is probably not the right thing to do. You, whatever you did in the past, whether you are a, you are a clinician and you ran your practice for 20 years in a different way, if you're sitting some in front of somebody, do not regret that. Okay, I did, I did not run my practice in the right way. Sure, learn from it, but don't regret because the decision that we made uh, back in the days or back in that time was very apt. And you made that decision based on your best abilities, your best situation you were in. So that's when I one thing that I've learned over the years in my the personal running that I don't regret anything. That I don't want people to regret any decision that they have made it made in their lives. Learn from them for sure. Make sure if you feel that they could be a wrong decision back then, but don't regret it. Regretting is is the worst thing in the world. I I, I, I that's what I feel like. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, um, Deepak, thank you so much for your time here. And also your kind words. I do want to leave you with one thing. Don't regret those first two years with your son. You're making up for it. Go watch him skate uh, (laughs) skate his face off. Yeah. (laughs) That'll be great. Thank you. And I'm sure. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Always a pleasure sitting with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'll see you soon. Remember to visit getbreakthrough.com to access our free resource library designed specifically for private practice growth. While you're there, Make sure you register for a complimentary growth assessment to learn about potential opportunities for growth in your local market. Again, thank you for tuning into the Grow Your Practice podcast and supporting our mission to help people in pain get back to normal naturally.